Kia ora and g'day. I'm Thomas, the bloke behind the History of Aotearoa New Zealand podcast. In this unashamedly homegrown podcast, we tell the story of our islands from the time before people arrived all the way up to the year 2000. Come and learn about the people that shaped Aotearoa into what it is today. From pre-European Māori to European colonisers as we talk about their life, culture, conflicts and ways of viewing the world around them. Find the history of Aotearoa New Zealand wherever you get your podcasts. They dread nothing like the 4.5%. Those were acting Governor Christopher Codrington's words while describing Barbados's plight and attitudes after the Second Anglo-Dutch War. Its finances were being pushed into a downward spiral, but it was the principle of it all that really bothered them. And in 1670, this led to the biggest showdown that any colony had had with its king in at least 30 years. And perhaps ever. You're listening to Rejects and Revolutionaries with Sarah Tinsalvola, a podcast tracing the origins of America from the Tudor era to the 20th century. Barbados was consumed with fury in 1669. They had just spent a hundred thousand pounds to defend the Leeward Islands. Their main town had burned to the ground twice. They had lost devastating quantities of sugar. The colony's labor sources had dried up. And the majority of its young male population was either dead or had moved away. And now they were being expected to billet soldiers who seemed to be there primarily to intimidate them into submission to the crown. The king wasn't recognizing that he owed them anything, really, and their governor, Willoughby, was back in England defending himself from colonists' rage-induced attempts to kick him out of office and demand self-government instead. Barbadians didn't get less angry when acting Governor Codrington's first action was to strictly enforce the Navigation Acts under the instructions of Charles's top advisor, Lord Arlington. He intercepted three Jewish-owned Amsterdam-based ships who had come to trade for sugar. The king backed Codrington on this with the colonists, and Codrington thanked him for the support. Soon, though, he went even further by seizing a vessel which had a majority Scottish crew, even though its captain was English. The Barbados courts supported that ship's appeal, but the Navigation Acts were officially in force. Bridges' regiment was also still stuck in Barbados, not paid and resentfully quartered. Willoughby had personally lent Bridge money, as had other colonists, and he'd been able to use that to keep the regiment alive. The regiment should have been paid a total of 500,000 pounds at this point, but while the king insisted that Barbados was responsible for paying that money, Bridge himself had gone 300,000 pounds into debt trying to support his soldiers. And of course, neither Carlyle's creditors nor Willoughby 
had been paid what they were owed out of the 4.5%, nor would they ever be. And with all these financial stresses centered around the 4.5%, the king made a decision. He decided to make it not his problem. A group of English gentlemen under Charles Wheeler had offered to pay him a flat £7,000 per year for the rights to the 4.5% duty, as well as promising to pay Bridges Regiment's arrears and compensate Barbadians for their lost ships and sugar during the war. And the king took him up on this. On Wheeler's part, it was a gamble. His group would lose money if Barbados produced less than £156,000 worth of sugar per year, and they would make money if its production exceeded that value. For Charles, though, it meant that whatever happened was no longer his responsibility, and he'd be guaranteed a healthy income from the island, regardless of whatever happened. Obviously, no one was rich enough to pay everything Wheeler said that he would, but Barbados could take that up with him and leave the king out of it. Willoughby protested, citing what the king owed Barbados and emphasizing what the 4.5% was supposed to pay for, according to the act, and complaining that colonists will now see what they have provided for themselves shipped to England. And in Barbados, colonists responded predictably. Before getting the news, they were already united in refusal to cooperate with the king's government on even the smallest of issues. After getting the news, they were apoplectic. Codrington wrote to Willoughby that his best-case scenario as acting governor was to keep the peace until he returned. They wouldn't pay a cent for even local government expenses. And they point-blank refused to quarter the soldiers anymore. They weren't just refusing to cooperate with the king's government, but any government at all. They did back down on the issue of the soldiers, because it's one thing to say that another person's life isn't your responsibility, and another to watch them starve to death in front of you. But they at least made the acting governor beg them repeatedly to quarter them. And if he wanted to be paid himself, he would also have to back the colonists in their fight with the king. It was clear that Barbados wasn't going to back down. So the king prepared his own strategy to counter colonists' demands. The Royal African Company, run by Charles's brother, lodged a complaint accusing the courts of protecting planters from having to pay their debts, and saying that that failure had injured the company. Using this as an excuse, the Privy Council ordered that in the future, any Barbadian who fell into debt would have his lands and goods confiscated and sold in payment. Given the amount of money that the island now owed and was owed, every single planter on the island was technically in debt 
and much of this was to the Royal African Company. That meant that the king's brother would have the legal authority to sell every Barbadian colonist's estate for his own profit if they didn't stop their political agitation. It was a massive threat, and even if Willoughby managed to convince the king not to take that step, it let the governor know just how far he was willing to go to quash Barbadian ideas about opposing him. So Willoughby wrote to the colonists and told them to drop the 4.5% thing, saying that if they kept defying the act, they would bring greater inconvenience on themselves than they could possibly imagine. But Barbadians wouldn't budge. Though they did thank Willoughby for his support and voted to give him a hundred thousand pounds of sugar as a token of their gratitude. They petitioned the king again with a formal letter restating their position and detailing exactly how they intended to defend it. And then they turned to the merchants. The merchants couldn't be said to be on their side, as we know from countless stories but the merchants needed Barbados to remain a viable colony for their own income, and the king was preparing some export duties to cripple the Barbadian sugar industry, which would also hurt the merchants, who would be forced to transport sugar in a form that was both bulkier and less valuable. Barbadians had been pretty careful to avoid alienating the merchants in their opposition to the Navigation Act, and the two would now unite for a common cause. And before the petition to the king even reached England, the merchants told the colonists that they needed to stop sending him stuff. Now was not the time. The king was getting ready to bludgeon them with import duties if they kept pushing. He was going to raise the import duties so high that colonists couldn't make money at all exporting refined sugar, molasses, and rum, and so that they would only be able to eke out a living exporting raw sugar. He was going to send sugar the way of Virginia tobacco, so they needed to step back, take a breath, and organize a little bit. The merchants said that Barbados needed to build a group of advocates in England who could defend their interests. That group could be headed by the merchants, and they would need to pay them for the help. And at the same time, they also needed to choose a courtier to whom they would give a salary to advocate their cause with the king. Barbadians agreed, and the merchants suggested one specific person, Lord Lauderdale a Scottish politician who had been a leader of the Engagers, that group of people who had supported the Covenanters in the First and the King in the Second Civil War. Choosing a Scottish courtier was strategic, because one of the highest priority tasks would be to ask for free trade between Barbados and Scotland. Barbadians agreed, and the merchants collected £145 to pay Lauderdale until Barbadian money came in. And then the merchants sent Barbados a message, 
which honestly just solidifies the love I have formed for this colony. And I will admit, as the show has gone on, understanding its flaws, I have grown to absolutely love Barbados. In this message, the merchants told Barbados that it needed to stop sending any messages directly to the king because the tone of what they'd been sending had sounded like they thought they were an independent nation. They were talking to the king like they were his equals. That just didn't look good, and it put people off, and it put the king off most of all. Barbadians were King Charles's subjects, and they were talking to their sovereign like they had forgotten that. For their own sake, they needed to reword, and actually, no, they just needed to send every message directly to the merchant committee, who would rewrite it in humbler language that would be more palatable at court. Barbadians agreed and they gathered the money they needed. They appointed a committee to keep up a continual correspondence with their London allies, and this transatlantic team became the driving force in Barbadian politics for the next few years. Whatever they suggested, Barbados did. Their hope was to eliminate the 4.5% and open up trade with Scotland, and their dream was to get a charter that would give them autonomy. But before any of that could happen, there was clearly some damage control that needed to be done. The import duty on sugar, which the king was considering, had actually made it to Parliament, and had even passed the House of Commons. It was up to Lauderdale and Willoughby to stop it. Ultimately, Willoughby was the one who showed the House of Lords that English refinery owners were the people behind the proposed law. This was because they would be the ones who profited from it most. All the revenue that the colonists and merchants lost would go to them, because they would buy the unrefined sugar and sell the refined sugar, tobacco, and rum. They had been the people who pushed the bill through the House of Commons, and when the Lords learned this, they rejected the proposal. They changed the duty to be only slightly higher than it already was, and this was one of, if not the first time, that the Lords had dared meddle in a money-related bill since the Civil Wars. The political, economic, and religious tensions that had defined the Civil War era hadn't gone away, and this meddling became a point of severe contention. The issue of Catholic rights had already made the atmosphere tense, and adding money to the mix increased conflict so much that the king prorogued Parliament and refused to call it for the next couple years. This meant that the bill fell through entirely, and there ended up being no increase in the import duty at all. This was a big win for Barbados, and indeed for all the Leeward Islands and Jamaica. But I mean, looking at the victory in context, it's understandable that this one win failed to take the edge off Barbadian resentment. Think of how much Barbados had done and lost in the last couple episodes, 
in defense of English interests, by the way, not Barbadian ones. Barbados would have been best off if the Dutch were still strong enough to help thwart the Navigation Act, and if England lost most of its competing sugar-producing colonies. So the war had gone directly against what was best for Barbados, and Barbados had fought anyway, without support. And now, just months later, its great victory in England was the thwarting of a new tax, which would have intentionally reduced it to Virginia-like levels of poverty. And to add to the lingering resentment, just as this victory happened, the other Leeward Isles had renewed their agitation for separation from Barbados. So Barbados's feelings and status hadn't changed. It was still refusing to pay for the island's government, and it still struggled with the issue of Bridges' regiment. Codrington was begging them on a monthly basis to keep quartering the soldiers, and they kept resentfully agreeing in exchange for concessions. Fortunately, though, the king did pay off and disband Bridges' regiment at this point, and granted land in Jamaica and the Leewards to soldiers who wanted it. A bunch of them went to Jamaica, joined by 200 Barbadians, while several hundred more prepared to follow. And speaking of people who hadn't been paid, acting Governor Codrington was still one of them. Of Barbadian officials, only Willoughby was paid directly by the king, and colonists refused to pay anyone else unless it was a reward for going above and beyond in their interests meaning their showdown with the king, forcing the colonists to pay for everything themselves was therefore backfiring in the king's efforts to reduce the island to submission. Because if Codrington wanted money, the only way to get it was to help the colonists resist him. This was a dynamic that would provide Barbados its greatest tool in fighting for autonomy for the next century. The king moved to change Barbados's government to make it less capable of resistance, but he didn't address this issue. He issued new instructions that any bills passed there would have to be explicitly approved by the king before they could be made permanent. This was standard in the newer colonies, but a change for Barbados where the king's input had previously been limited to veto power. More interesting, though, was the fact that now only the king would be able to appoint people to colonial office. The problem with this was that it eliminated a major tool that colonial governors used to lead their constituents. The giving of governmental offices was one of the best tools that a governor had to build relationships, reward support, and otherwise incentivize cooperation. It's how Berkeley had won over Virginia, and it's how Francis Lord Willoughby had successfully taken the reins in Barbados. But now, only the king was allowed to do this. And true to character, the king's first appointment 
was one which was clumsily and inflammatorily designed to drive home the point that he was the boss. His first appointment was Bridge, and Codrington refused to admit Bridge to the council, correctly pointing out that he wasn't legally eligible because he didn't own land in Barbados. So this became yet another way in which the king's actions were counterproductive. In fairness, it did help Codrington ingratiate himself with angry colonists, but this was only because the acting governor stood up for them against the king. Practically speaking, Codrington had two choices. He could back the king against the law and face likely armed revolt from the colonists as well as not getting paid, or he could disobey the king, keep the colonists peaceful, and get paid as well as following the law. The choice was clear, and Codrington's popularity skyrocketed while the king's stayed exactly where it was because it couldn't fall any further. And fundamentally, the fact was that if there was another war, Barbados wasn't going to help any of England's other colonies, nor would it serve the king. And this was doubly true because now the merchants and other islands had in fact successfully gotten the king to separate Barbados from the rest of the leewards. This meant that Willoughby would only be governor of Barbados, while Antigua, St. Kitts, Nevis, and Montserrat did their own thing. And to emphasize the point that they would not fight for the king, Barbados refused to build or repair forts unless paid for by the 4.5%. When the king refused to pay, they simply let their defenses deteriorate. And the issue of another war wasn't far off. In 1671, while Willoughby was still in England, the Third Anglo-Dutch War was declared. This time, the French were England's allies, and in fact, they had paid Charles for England's participation. This was part of the reason that he'd gotten involved in the first place, hoping that the money would make him independent of Parliament in addition to the war giving him a reputation as a military leader. When war was declared, Willoughby asked the king for small investments to protect his West Indian colonies. He requested an armed frigate to patrol the Caribbean to protect English shipping from Dutch privateers, and he asked for a temporary wartime dispensation to the Navigation Act to allow Barbados to import food and clothing from foreign colonies, necessities which England had totally failed to provide colonists during the last war. But the king again refused. And he followed up his refusal by saying that since there was a war on, Willoughby should probably go govern the colony where he was a governor. And he again ordered him to put bridge on the council when he got there. And he sent Willoughby with an offer for the colonists. Barbados said it wanted the 4.5% eliminated and that it would be willing to pay a lump sum for that. So the king's offer, 
was to replace the 4.5% with a flat 5,000 pounds sterling per year in exchange for the elimination of all debt he owed them. Basically, they would give him 1 to 200,000 pounds sterling in exchange for the possibility of paying up to 2,000 pounds fewer per year in taxes. Or, with the falling sugar prices, they might still end up paying more. Who knows? The king thought this was a great idea. Barbadians did not. Codrington, whose tenure as assistant governor had gotten off to such a rough start with his dedicated enforcement of the Navigation Act, had, by the time Willoughby returned, so earned the island's loyalty that he was elected Speaker of the House for nine of the next ten years. Perhaps fortunately, and honestly, perhaps unfortunately in a way, the Third Anglo-Dutch War didn't really involve the West Indies much. Willoughby took the opportunity to seize Tobago from the Dutch for the benefit of Barbados rather than England. Tobago was strategically located and therefore threatening in wartime as well as being a sugar-producing rival in times of peace. And in addition, the battle was a good way to get rid of Bridge and his surviving soldiers, and it ended up being a cheap and successful fight. Willoughby made a present of Tobago to Barbados as an island under its own jurisdiction, and the assembly thanked him. But it also said that Barbados didn't have enough money or workers to settle it at that point in time. Beyond that, the only real events of the war that involved Barbados were the capture of a merchant fleet filled with Barbadian sugar, as well as yet another fire at St. Michael's Town, which destroyed food and other supplies. Shortly after all this happened, though, in April 1672, Willoughby fell sick. And soon it was clear that he wasn't going to get better. He appointed Sir Peter Colleton as deputy governor, and three days later he died. This marked the end of an era for Barbados. As Francis Lord Willoughby's death had coincided with the end of Barbados's economic preeminence, William Lord Willoughby's would mark the end of its political distinction. With William's death, King Charles stopped appointing Willoughby family members to serve as governor and opted instead to choose people with no loyalty to the island. And that's where we'll stop for today. Next episode, we'll return to Jamaica and do the pirate thing again.